1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie, I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're joined by Dr. Lily Zatch, a senior lecturer at the Department of English Studies at ELTA in Budapest in Hungary. Uh, Dr. Zatch received her MA degrees in History and Irish Studies at the University of Szeged in Hungary in 2006, going on then to complete a diploma course in Irish language and a PhD at the National University of Ireland Galway in 2016. Her new book is entitled Imagining Ireland Abroad, 1904 to 1945, Conceiving the Nation Identity and Borders in Central Europe, which is what we're going to talk about today. Dr. Zatch, welcome. Thank you you so much for joining us.
0: That's great. Thank you for having me and I'm very happy to be here and uh, and to talk about my book for a change to those who are interested in it, except for um, my family and uh, friends who are probably tired of it at this stage, but uh, really glad to be here.
1: Sure, Thanks so much. Um, It's a very familiar uh, problem when you realize you've been kind of talking too much about a project, uh, and then you have to go and promote (laughs) it and you're kind of sick of it by that point. so, so let me start by asking about this title, Imagining Ireland Abroad. What does it mean to imagine Ireland abroad? What is this book actually about?
0: Um, most importantly, the book uh, illustrates the complexity and the fluidity of Irish images and Irish perceptions of Central Europe and East Central European identities, and by extension, how independent Ireland set out to define its relationship with the wider world in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, for- First, I aimed to bridge the gap that exists between historiographies of the East and West, and uh, I wanted to challenge the image of an isolated, inward-looking Irish nation that had defined itself internationally, mainly through its relationship with the British Empire. Therefore, I focused on new insights into the significance of transfers and comparisons between Ireland and Austria, Hungary and Czechoslovakia by shifting away the focus from relationships between small states and great powers and place small nations in the center of attention. Therefore, I wanted to highlight the evolution and shifting nature of Irish perceptions through both wartime and peace, starting with the parallels Arthur Griffith through with the austro hungarian Empire in his resurrection of Hungary. My book reveals how uh, nationalist Irish perceptions changed since Griffith's influential study and after the rebirth of the small states of Austria, Hungary and Czechoslovakia, and the formation of the Irish Free State on the other hand. Ultimately, the book traces the transformation of political frameworks in Ireland and central Europe in order to illustrate the significance of rethinking the question of borders and identities in a transnational context. So I try to squeeze all of these into that title. Uh, Mm -hmm. According to Irish contemporaries, themes such as small nations' right to self-determination or the question of borders and minorities, they persistently defined identities in central Europe. This book demonstrates that discussing Central European boundary issues in parallel with the so-called Ulster problem was a recurring theme in Irish accounts through the first half of the 20th century. The Ulsters of Central Europe, a concept not examined in comprehensive historical study to date, not only may enrich our understanding of the minority question in Habsburg Central Europe, but I think it also offers insights into the role of propaganda and Irish political rhetoric. Therefore, the readers of this book book will hopefully discover how Irish comments on central European parallels ultimately reveal uh, the outward looking nature of Irish nationalists at a time of change. Among other issues, the book also reveals that Dublin became a significant meeting point with central European small states after the 1920s. For example, the foundation of the Czechoslovak consulate and the honorary consulates of Austria and Hungary in Dublin. uh, They all served as examples for the growing significance of trade relations and cultural connections among small states, even if these consulates primarily and principally served symbolic purposes. Irish connections uh, with the region, uh, as well as the continuing interest was, uh, or were best demonstrated by the fact that both Richard John Kelly and Hubert Briscoe, who had pre-war experience in Habsburg Central Europe, ended up as honorary consuls of the successor states in Dublin in the 1920s. The former, uh, Kelly for Austria, Czechoslovakia, Romania and Lithuania, he was really backing them up, and the latter for Hungary, And in addition to uh, them, uh, politicians, diplomats, other segments of Irish society, like businessmen, scholars, public figures with cultural affiliations, they all expressed considerable uh, interest and considerably more interest in the successors of the dual monarchy than, for example, the Irish government did. Naturally, the experiences of Irish journalists, such as Gertrude Gaffney, whom we we would know from her, Uh, coverage on the Spanish Civil War, for example, or Robert M. Smiley, the editor of the Irish Times after uh, 1934, they were all crucial in shaping public opinion regarding the small states in central Europe, even if that's not what uh, we would know them uh, for primarily. So to summarize, the central theme of the book is to trace how Irish interest in small nations challenges persisting ideas of Irish national insularity and exceptionalism. My research has shown that similarly to the constructed nature of the Irish nationalist self-image, Irish images of other small nations were also constructed with the purpose of reflecting Irish national identity. The views of the Irish intelligentsia regarding other small nations were undoubtedly of evolutionary nature, and they depended on the domestic Irish circumstances as well as the wider European context. Ultimately, Irish awareness of Central European parallels sheds light on hitherto less explored aspects on Irish nationalist discourse, particularly on the level of uh, personal encounters that transcended the borders of nation states. Therefore, I would say that like if we really wanted to pack it into one sentence, the book provides insights into how investigating Irish images of the successor states of Austria-Hungary through a transnational lens could complement the narratives of national history.
1: So it, it does feel like your book kind of does a lot to kind of break out of this. Um, tend- I mean, a, a number of different tendencies that Irish history writing has, either to just see Ireland. In very insular terms or in terms of the, of the broader British Isles, um, or sometimes um, looking at Ireland in a kind of post-colonial context, it's interesting to, to switch it, how you're switching it completely and looking at it as a transnational small nations context. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if I could ask you a little bit about this, this really evocative phrase you use, the Ulsters of Central Europe. Um, it reminds me of a, a comment that, that the British conservative historian Hugh Trevor Roper once made that um, he called the state of Israel, a small Jewish Ulster in the great Ireland of Arabia. Um, it's a phrase, the phrase you're using, the, Jew, the, the Ulsters of Central Europe, ha, suggests a whole lot of different avenues you could use to explore this transnational history of small nations and borders and partition and things like that, uh, and minority questions. So I, I was wondering, first of all, ha, did it really matter that, the, that the, the successor states of the Habsburg empire and the Habsburg empire itself um, were predominantly Catholic.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, this is such a complex question, and I'm really glad that uh, uh, we we are arriving here to discuss it because, uh, like with the transnational connections and the alternative uh, alternative routes, as you said, like or the other examples that come up, uh, like uh, in terms of comparisons as well with uh, like the Jewish case or even a case or or other uh, places similar challenges in in uh, India, South Africa, or Palestine, or in the context, uh, like in other, other parts of the British Empire. So indeed, a lot of these have been covered in historiography, like uh, the ones I uh, uh, I refer to. That's actually something that I cannot remember whether it's only in my thesis or the book itself, but you know, when drawing up the historiographical context, I was really interested in uh, similar uh, issues similar Jews, and not just uh, Central Europe, but also like the even the post-colonial uh, lens that she referred to as well. And therefore came across the word of, of course, by uh, like Alvin Jackson referred to um, the fact that partition, the partition of Ireland had a wider imperial uh, resonance, or Joe Cleary also compared the British support, support for Ulster Unionists to that of the Zionist movement and therefore he's viewed partition within the context of colonialism so these are just a couple of uh, examples to show that this is a very well researched issue um, and that kind of post-colonial lens Uh, so that is something that had been written about and explored more rather than the central European connection and even uh, you mentioned uh, the phrase I'm using the Ulsters of Central Europe that is something that uh, I didn't make up. I wish I did because it would have been great to have a title. But uh, it was it was my primary sources who revealed this. So it was the contemporary Irish nationalists who were using these phrases. Like uh, uh, like the newspapers quite often, uh, the Freeman's Journal and uh, and the Irish Independent as well. They uh, they were referring to multiple versions of this concept. Uh, the Bohemian Ulster, so that region, the German uh, inhabited uh, region of Bohemia, that was the most common example. Uh, but also the umbrella term that uh, that I mentioned, the Ulsters of Central Europe. That refers to, or that, that appeared in a um, 1918 autumn issue of the Freeman's Journal, that is something that, like, um, that was groundbreaking. But when the First World War broke out in 1914, there were references to a Balkans, uh, Balkan Balkan Ulster uh, referring to the uh, kind of controversial nature of the of the conflict and the ethnic slash. Religious situation there. So you you mentioned religion, and that is a fascinating one to to trace. Like, what was the most important uh, issue that attracted Irish attention in like in my region, the one I'm looking at in Central Europe, or elsewhere as well? In this case, I would say that. Uh, uh, spoil alert uh, for the conclusion: there was no one um, issue that determined Irish interest or even identities so but i the conclusion i came to was the persistence of uh, and the evolution of multiple layers of identities or uh, multiple markers of, uh, of loyalties as well we can we can use both of these terms so depending on the situation uh, depending on the uh, the actual background of the speaker uh, or or writer and depending on the central european issue uh, like sometimes religion came to define perceptions and that was the main issue or uh, at other times language and uh, and ethnicity so or sometimes they were intertwined but what also came up was uh, that uh, regional identities were crucial as well and that is something that uh, uh, i think uh, the transnational lens I talk about is actually bringing up really nicely because, uh, the nation-state centered focus it doesn't really allow us for uh, like uh, to include borderlands and regions uh, from from this kind of perspective to go beyond the, the nation states and I found that like such as these Ulsters uh, that's what that's what they are technically these borderland regions that are uh, m- reaching a kind of uh, controversial status um, in multiple different like in in multiple contexts really so that's uh that was an interesting part about like religion and also the fact that religion was not only and Catholicism in particular wasn't just a a topic that they wrote about that these Irish commentators uh, addressed, but it really was a was a lens through which they examined uh, the entirety of the region and uh like, even like there were some surprising findings about like the question of religion and the and how important Catholicism was in, uh, in these cases. And uh, like Austria became one of the most in, uh, interesting uh, cases for this, how that was really beyond uh, like what I was expecting. Like, when I started the research, um, I uh, like Austria wasn't part of the original countries that I was about to research. But uh, when I started my PhD, my original idea was uh, Hungary and the Little Entente Nation. So the Little Entente made up of Czechoslovakia, Romania and Yugoslavia. And uh, this is a wonderful example for showing how important flexibility is in, mm-hmm. uh, in the life of an academic, saying that if you don't have enough sources or if like the sources don't come together uh, into a coherent narrative, you need to like alter your approach and your focus. And uh, that's what I did um, because the uh, when I went to the National Archives in Bishop Street, I found that the materials on Yugoslavia and Romania, uh, in addition to the ones that I was looking at in the confessional journals, like studies and the uh, Irish ecclesiastical records, uh, Catholic bulletin. The, the narrative wasn't wasn't coherent. You know, it wasn't uh, coming together into a an entire puzzle. The pieces of the puzzle were there, but they were way too fragmented. So I I looked at the other uh, the, the neighboring states as well. And what other uh, like okay, what else is there about, for example, Austria? And uh, I found that there was the material was much more coherent, and even uh, when we are looking at the like these these three countries that I ended up examining: Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary they have been uh, part of uh, other studies before. So they were already used as a unit of, uh, of investigation before by uh, Gábor Batony in a study on like British, um, like a British diplomatic work, but still uh, that showed that uh, uh, these three countries, technically they were the only ones out of the successor states of Austria-Hungary who were in the empire in their entirety. So even though, uh, Yugoslavia, like post-war Yugoslavia and Romania and even Poland had parts from the former empire. Uh, in their entirety, it was only Austria, Czechoslovakia and Hungary that had been uh, part of uh, the dual monarchy before. So that also gave uh, like a room for more investigation to, to look at uh, this particular focus and to move from, from what I imagined originally.
1: There seems to be an interesting kind of problem here about basically the fine line between fluidity and incoherency. Um, mm-hmm. um, how, how much does it, how much, how much fluidity is there in terms of how they view these three countries—Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary? Are there th- are there things that make Irish perceptions of Austria different from Irish perceptions, say, of Hungary or or of Czechoslovakia, or are they all just kind of viewed? In similar fluid terms, as just interesting border regions, small nations, clusters.
0: Uh, there are definitely themes that, uh, that that are very persistent, and they uh, they are visible throughout the entire period. So, if I wanted to summarize uh, these into just a couple of expressions, it would be that, uh, like post nineteen eighteen perceptions, uh, would be Catholic Austria democratic Czechoslovakia and irredentist Hungary. So throughout like, the like uh oh let's do the math like live on air I'm not able to um, to really tackle that problem. So between 1918 and 1945, uh, these are uh, really what we can categorize Irish perceptions under. There were, you know, there were there was room for more uh, more issues as well. But definitely, these were the ones that were the most persistent. So, even though, for example, the question of like religion and like Catholicism was uh, uh, and or church issues in general um, came up in relation to Czechoslovakia as well. Still, the democratic nature of the uh, inter- interwar Czechoslovak Republic—that's what was uh, the most important—and the role of of President Tomáš uh, Masaryk. Uh, in that process, so that was uh, very persistent uh, throughout the interwar years. In addition to still the minority and uh, the questions of the German minority in Bohemia, particularly with the emergence of the Sudetenland crisis after 1938. So that's that. And for for Austria, that was what like I was mo- I was really surprised by uh, by the Irish sympathies expressed towards Austria after 1980. 1919, 1920, after the, uh, like the, uh, the Saint-Germain Treaty was signing after the, technically the war was, uh, was over. And by like the birth of the Austrian small state, like first the German Austrian small state, and then um, like the Austrian Republic that we see in the years of the, like during the interwar years, because I I was expecting that, um, you know, that's a kind of, Austria is an um, like is a former Empire but still it has that very kind of direct link to the uh, to the Empire and to the Habsburgs and I thought that that is going to be uh, like what's what is going to define Irish perceptions of Austria even during the interwar years and that was not the case uh, like it's uh, like imperial roots were not, uh, Criticized by enemies, but they were rather focusing on the on the fact that they were Catholics and how how a pious nation, uh, how a pious Catholic uh, nation, Austria is. And even when they were looking at different issues, like political issues in the twenties and and the thirties, they were always finding that kind of Catholic connection and like uh, even in political terms, uh, like in connection with. Uh, the uh, Christian socialists in Austria, like um, uh, Monsignor Ignaz Seipel, who was the, the key political figure at that time, and how uh, how Irish commentators were really a huge fan of him, and uh, like the, the like most most of the 1930s studies so is made up of uh, praising. Um, Uh, articles praising uh, Zeipel. So that was quite, uh, quite uh, important during the period. And for Hungary, the Irenantist Hungary and Hungarian borders, that that was also actually quite surprising, because I was expecting it to be more prominent at the time of the like you know the like the Paris treaties or in, in, uh, like the Versailles treaties or in the case of Hungary the Pia- the Trianon Peace Treaty, but uh, interestingly at the time in 1920 like it was hardly uh, referred to in the Irish papers. Like on the day it or the day after it wasn't even discussed. But it's uh, going to be in the 1930s that uh, that this question of borders and um, like the integrity of the nation and uh, like the minorities on each side of the border, this kind of thing. But it's, it's, it is being brought up by Irish sources, as well as, um, as well as uh, how it became part of the Hungarian interwar constant rhetoric about the integrity of the nations under the crown of St. Stephen. But uh, like in, in Ireland, it's, Particularly under, I would say, like when there is a change in government after 1932 and um, and Fianna Fáil come to power, uh, that's when we that's when we see like more and more references to the borders and the unity of the nation. So we can really uh, get an idea about even the like the declared purpose of the of the De Valera government as well.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds. And I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If. if only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: So, So there are these kind of what either at the time or in hindsight can seem like obvious comparisons that people can draw about Catholic populations and minority populations um, and board you know new borders and the the challenge of building a democracy after being part of a monarchy and an undemocratic monarchy mm-hmm. what was the oddest comparison you, you came across or what was the most unexpected find that you you had during the entirety of your research
0: mm-hmm. that is uh, that is a really good question I would say that like you know like not everyone was a fan of uh, uh, comparisons with Central Europe. So, for example, we I talked about Griffith and like Griffith's comparison, or he studied the Resurrection of Hungary and how how, how I wouldn't put I wouldn't say hated generally hated Griffith was for this, but how unpopular that concept was, uh, which shows like how many Irish, how many other nationalists attacked uh, Griffith and uh, Sinn Féin in general. Uh, for example, like uh, like the cultural uh, revivalist like DP Moran who was the uh, mm-hmm. like from the leader uh, he was uh, he was one of the top top haters of Griffith uh, at the time who was constantly uh, criticizing him and the the idea of uh, uh, of Sinn Féin and um, and their idea of passive resistance and how they imagined like Irish independence and the Irish nation. Mm-hmm. so they were really not, uh, uh, not well liked and not uh, not accepted by by others so so a lot of the a uh, lot of the things that we would as historians i'd say like think uh think of as like granted or given that oh everyone is interested in that like i just as I mentioned with uh, uh, with regard to the Trianon Peace Treaty, like contemporaries, you know, not not nothing, almost nothing, and uh, so this is a good kind of reminder, I think, for us that um, uh, not not everything that we would think was such a big issue then um, was uh, at the time, and how interestingly it. Uh, Changed later to to mean something else. So that is for the connections and like you know the different kind of uh, comparisons and uh, how not everyone was a fan of these. And interestingly, like as for the findings, like what was the most surprising one? It wasn't about these different kind of perceptions, but about the uh, about the existence of these uh, consulates and honorary consulates that I mentioned. Because when I started uh, the PhD and this project itself. My first, one of the first things I did was I browsed through the index of the documents and Irish foreign policy volumes, the ones that were published, like you know, uh, in this area, like in this time period, and uh, I was going from there. And uh, then I looked up like some of the like, Hungarian records, like online, etc. And what I found in like books on diplomacy was the fact that uh, like the link between direct diplomatic representation um, was only started in the 1970s. I was really surprised when I went to Bishop Street uh, to the National Archives and there was Hubert Briscoe in all his glory uh, writing on Hungarian stationery. And uh, signing the papers as honorary uh, Hungarian consul or honorary consul of Hungary in Dublin. So that was like I know that it's not uh, not a groundbreaking finding, but you know, when, like it still completely changed the perception of um, like how I perceive that uh, issue, like the fact that diplomatic representation uh, or interest in uh, in like, one country and the other. That hadn't uh, existed before the 70s. And this was 1925 that these um, uh, honorary consulates were established. So that showed that there was indeed an, an interest. And I think it's even telling how, like, uh, the fact that they are not official embassies, but uh, started, or they all started as honorary consulates. And that is because the fact that it's an honorary consulate, it shows that there is an interest from the Irish public like a uh, businessman or uh, cultural figures like I mentioned like uh, Kelly who was the proprietor of the tomb Herald yeah the, yes it was the tomb Herald and um, um, Hubert Briscoe who's no who's not a Relation to Robert Briscoe, the Fianna Foy TD uh, later, but uh, Hubert Briscoe was a Dublin stockbroker, so he's a businessman as well. And they, they you know, they volunteered to uh, to fill in these posts, and uh, so it all started with interest from like Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary separately. Uh, they expressed interest to the um, uh, to the British uh, like diplomatic uh, like, uh, circles in. Uh, Uh, in London um, and they said that, okay, they're the high commissioner in London and they were looking for business people or people of like uh, high standing who would be interested in filling these positions. So that actually shows us uh, that uh, it was like it was the Irish public who was uh, who had this interest even for these um, for establishing these these links, these political ties as well. And uh, so it's them and the Central European states. So the actual Irish government at the time they were severely limited, of course, in the early ninety and mid nineteen twenties. You know, just recovering from the civil war, etc. So their funds and their Everything was pretty limited. So it wasn't their main priority to develop links with uh, Czechoslovakia, Austria or Hungary. But uh, they, they were very open to the idea when the central Europeans were knocking on the door saying like, OK, we, we are really interested in doing this. So that is, I think, uh, uh, definitely noteworthy uh, from this perspective as well.
1: I was going to ask about Hubert Briscoe, I hadn't heard of his name before, um, uh, was he actually related to the to the Briscoe family, who are obviously a, a very well-connected family, but also are Jewish, and uh, uh, the question of, uh, like, the Jewish questions of, of Central Europe are kind of hanging in the background of your book, and, and you mentioned them a little bit, but how much did, did Jewishness become an issue, or is that just kind of brushed over by the various Irish people that show an interest in Central Europe?
0: To to start with the with the Briscoe uh, link, I checked uh, I checked the census records, and these are different Briscoes. So for mm-hmm. uh, Hubert Briscoe's family, they're uh, they're listed as Catholics, as Roman Catholics. So they're different Briscoes. But I was really excited when I found it. I was like, oh, maybe, maybe no. So mm-hmm. that was that wasn't it. But uh, still, uh, he had like he was very much involved in or interested in the region and like the Balkans as well he, he also wrote a newspaper series there around ooh, like pre-first pre world war as far as I remember it was around like nine, uh, yeah pre-first world war I can't remember the exact year uh, he had several uh, several kind of traveling pieces in the region so his uh, interest was definitely persistent in the period but uh, not, not via the uh, Jewish connection. That was interesting, though. I um, I was curious about how this was going to pan out as well, and uh, like the Second World War being the uh, issue or being the um, like the time period that was going to be the most um, uh, the most obvious where the Jewish question was going to come up. Interestingly, uh, this is something that we see as early as like 1919 1920 and that was because of the uh because of the bolshevik takeover in hungary in march 1919 and uh, also some of the others uh in like munich as well and like even the uh the year before like 1917 like the russian uh, revolution itself and uh and how irish commentators and those who were writing in, in studies and uh, particularly like some of the shorter outbursts in the Catholic bulletin were particularly ferocious in making that connection between the communists and the fact that some of the leaders were Jewish. So that kind mm-hmm. of uh, link between uh, like anti-Semitism and anti-communism. Uh, this is something that we see very prominently as early as like 1919, 1920s. So it wasn't, So uh, so I would say that uh, the the Jewish question in quotation marks, uh, that is something that was linked to Communist threat in uh, in Central Europe, um, based on what I read from these uh, from these authors. So that I, that was inseparable uh, for 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 a lot of them. And even though some uh, some of these authors, such as like Lambert McKenna was pretty well balanced, who was writing in studies, but he also noticed that the Hungarians had. Uh, left, but he wasn't making the connection between. Uh, like uh, the Jewry and the and the Communists, but he mentioned that Hungarians were pretty suspicious about uh, about Jews and how their position became how their position changed after the new borders and after Hungary had lost. Um, like, those huge territories as well. So that's basically the, the Jewish uh, people became like the biggest visible minority in the country and, uh, and uh, they had really nowhere to hide. So that's what, according to McKenna as well, that's what contributed to the fact that um, uh, sometimes they were blamed for issues that they were not uh, responsible for. And uh, this kind of uh, attitude, uh, is something that we see more prominently in the 1930s, as in with the emergence of Irish anti-communism after 1931, with the banning of Era, for example, and, you know, the rest of these issues. Uh, that's when the number of articles grow in uh, in studies and uh, and the other confessional journals as well, who were going to start you know, bringing up this connection as well, that uh, there is a communist threat and uh, making these comparisons. That was actually another favorite find of mine, how they were making, in 1930s, Irish authors were making comparisons between both Budapest and Vienna. Actually, there are separate cases making these uh, comparisons, how they were like, uh, like, they were making these connections with uh, like the 1683 and 1686, uh, them stopping the Turks. So like there was the siege of Vienna and then when uh, Buddha was liberated from the Turks as well. So how both Budapest and uh, Vienna, how both Hungary and Austria stood as the, um, like the the uh, oh, what was the phrase the key keepers of the gates of western civilization i think it's also one of my subtitle uh chapters and that is something that um that i was really excited to find like to make these kind of um comparisons uh that was quite uh fascinating
1: yeah I, i've done research myself on um on Irish anti-Semitism and, and it's it's shocking how much, I mean, both how how anti-Semitic many Irish writers could be, given the almost total absence of an actual Jewish population in, in Ireland. Um, and then also how much it it can, how much it becomes bound up with anti-communism. Um, and your book, I, I might end with a question about communism, because your book ends in 1945, which seems to be, I mean, obviously quite a, a neat place to uh, to end the story. Um, but all, all three of these countries become very different then after 1945, right? Austria goes from being um, a Nazi country to being a, a neutral, relatively democratic state, but then Hungary and Czechoslovakia become communists. So is there a kind of a, a, a set, another chapter you could have told about um, perceptions of, of communist Hungary and communist Czechoslovakia after that? And is that where you plan to go next with your research, or are you... Are you planning something totally different?
0: Uh, yes, that is uh, definitely what I had in mind originally, like going back to the to the issue of uh, flexibility and how you change uh, your project as you're going along. And that is exactly what happened because I wanted to, like uh, the dates kept changing. So originally I wanted to do 1918 till 1939. So it was to be only interwar Europe. And then I found that like we cannot really work with this with our little Europe centric and with you know like these kind of uh, this kind of mindset that we have that having these very clear chronological uh, and like dates you know to like uh, that it has to be 1918 because there were so many references to small nations before that as well and like particularly the outbreak of the first war in uh, in uh, 1914 so there was a lot of small nations um like uh, political rhetoric kind of issue then and even like going back to the second world war and the same thing happened with the ending date as well i pushed it to the uh, to the end of the second world war 1945 and while i was um, at the national archives uh, looking at the dfa archives uh, i found that there were more and more records clearly with the czech honorary consulate uh, That when and like even beyond 1945, and how uh, it was also raised to the level of embassy. But then, with the communist takeover in uh, 1948, that, that really changed things considerably. So I I ended up uh, cutting the the end bit, uh, like uh, between 1945 and 1948, for for purely length reasons. Because I uh, I don't know about you, but I that that's still what i find the hardest to do like even here i am i don't know how many years after uh, starting researching this topic as well as anything else but you know to try to uh, like struggle and and uh, get to the maximum uh, word limits uh, that is that is something that i find really really tricky so uh, for for both my thesis this and for the book that is the that is the reason like one the, the main reason why the other reason is that the is is linked to the coherence of the narrative and how exactly as you said Austria found itself on the mm-hmm. like on the western border of the of the Iron Curtain and Hungary and Czechoslovakia on the other so these narratives would have been really, uh, broken up, and also the fact that, like in the case of the Hungarian honorary consulate, Briscoe resigned in 1941 when, uh, like shortly after uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, because he's he he said like after Hungary uh, joined the war. Like the declared war on Great Britain, they he said that like he has business interest in London, so he can't fill that uh, position, and uh, they ended up uh, transferring the materials of this to the Swedish embassy, which I haven't uh, been able to trace down, but uh, it's it's there somewhere. But uh, yeah, so that's the the main reason why, and there is definitely um, there is definitely uh more room to discover this and to and to and to research this topic like uh, for example the the question of hungarian refugees arriving in ireland in 1956 or after 1956 but is something that has been uh studied before like elich ward wrote about it in uh, in the 90s as far as i remember and uh, and other issues as well so i think that would be definitely um uh, definitely a worthy undertaking uh, for the future, but yeah, for for myself at this stage, I think uh, I'm going to stop here now um and yes just to uh, just to enjoy this book and i think for for future studies and for for the next period i think shorter so, shorter research studies would be the way to go because exactly like a like the two, the three countries that i've uh, i've been tracing they're in such different uh positions that uh, the narrative wouldn't be uh, that's that coherent so i think it's like separate either case studies or to change the change the focus. But yeah, it's, uh, I'm not planning on doing more research on this in particular, because I put too many other things on the back burner while I was doing this. I remember even as I was going through the Irish newspaper archives, as I was writing the thesis, I found Uh, I think it was 1919, 1920, like War of Independence, definitely. I found an article um, in one of the Irish papers where they were uh, on about like how the British are trying to force margarine on Ireland and how we demand our Irish butter or how, how we demand butter. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. So I'm actually uh, teaching and researching food history as well as history of humor. So this is going really nicely into my 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 food history um, kind of uh, quiver, so to speak. So um, we can say that probably my next book is going to be related to that uh, in some way or The other so there's uh, definitely new new directions for me, but I'm I'm still teaching these topics and uh, um, unfortunately unfortunately for those around me I'm still um, going off on tangents every time something even remotely relevant comes up. So so that's that.
1: Um, It often feels like Irish history really suffers from from being a very Anglophone field, um, and and the most kind of common thing with an Irish history book is it's predominantly English language sources with maybe a few Irish language sources thrown in where, where needed. Um, it's incredibly impressive, the, the linguistic diversity that you're drawing on. And now it seems like you're breaking new ground with, with some really cutting edge um, methodologies about history of humor and history of food. So if that research is, any, is anywhere near as good as this, it's something we can definitely be excited about. Uh, thank awesome. you so much. Thank you so much for joining us and for this great conversation.
0: Thank you very much, Edna. I really appreciate your time. Cheers.